0: This is the Negotiate X podcast, show number thirty two. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the NegotiateX podcast, really good one here. And I'm just going to get right into it, turn it over to Aram to introduce our guest.
1: Yeah, thanks, Nolan. So today we have an opportunity to just take a, a time out from where we've been and talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now. And I just, I'm, I'm very appreciative to our team for being flexible, but also to our guest I'll introduce in just a moment for adjusting his schedule to be to be with us. A, a week ago, uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine and I have former students that are, are Ukrainian they reached out trying to take action. They're, they're based here in the U.S., wanted to get involved, trying to help with uh, policy and, and other things to back home for them. And so I reached out to a group of fellow negotiators to see who had uh, who might have some connections with, with folks who have done work there. And I was very fortunate to be connected to our guest uh, our guest today. And I asked him if he'd come on and just share some of his insights through a negotiation lens. We're hearing so much in the media from, from different talking heads, different objectives and different backgrounds to really just kind of look at this problem set now and what's occurring uh, in Ukraine through the lens of negotiation. So our guest today is Arthur Tarosian. Arthur is a negotiation and mediation uh, specialist with over 27 years of experience in the design and implementation of strategic dialogue programs. This has been everywhere from uh, Russia to Georgia, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Kosovo, Serbia, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Ukraine, and and many other countries. He is a trainer in leadership negotiation, cross-cultural communication for both public and private clients uh, in several dozens of countries. He speaks nine different languages. He has a master's degree from Yale in international relations, and he has worked with some of our colleagues uh, at Conflict Management Group, Mercy Corps, and and now the Bridgeway Group. So Arthur, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. It's
2: a pleasure and honor to be with you. Uh, Very uh, troubling times, uh, but I think we need to be talking from the uh, negotiation perspective about what's going on. It's it's very important that we uh, do not forget that if there is a way out, it's going to be at the negotiation table.
1: Arthur, to get started, and just maybe before we get uh, into discussing Ukraine, would you be willing to share with us just a little bit about your background? How did you get into the field of of negotiation, and specifically, how did you get working in, in this region of the world? Well,
2: I was born in uh, the Republic of Georgia, former Soviet Union in Tbilisi. I'm ethnic Armenian, and then... Uh, You mentioned I came to Yale for my degree. Actually, I was uh, one of the first uh, students from the former Soviet Union at Yale. And then um, about the time of graduation, one of my professors recommended to talk to his colleague, Professor Roger Fisher, who needed a consultant on uh, conflicts in uh, Georgia. And uh, that's how I joined Conflict Management Group. It was in 1994. And ever since, I thought in the beginning that it would be just a couple of years just gaining practical experience of what I've been exploring theoretically. But then um, this work really uh, uh, dragged me. Uh, I think I went not just uh, through transformation uh, in my perspective of, of what can be done uh, uh, in conflict management, but um, now also personal transformation. I came as a somewhat skeptic about uh, this kind of the can-do approach to conflict management as I was seeing it from more uh, scholarly perspectives, Yale's conflict resolution programs. But um, as I started to work, especially with Roger, uh, Bill Urey, and many other colleagues, I'm sure that most of the names from uh, Harvard Negotiation Project, Harvard Law school um, the colleagues uh, that we share, we know, uh, and I've been um, blessed to be able to work with so many you know, talented and gifted uh, people in uh, very different conflicts. And I could see that if you
1: do the process right, chances are that you will get good outcome. Yeah, that's that's wonderfully said. So thank you for, for that path. And and I, I do want to make sure everyone knows that I didn't just have ask you to be on because you are a fellow Armenian, but that is that is a that is definitely a, a plus. So again, Arthur, thanks for thanks for sharing a bit about your background.
0: Hey Arthur, as we kind of get started here, I was hoping you kind of set the stage for us between uh understanding the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Does that go back to nineteen eighty-nine or is it you know further than that or is it sooner than that and just kind of set the set the groundwork for understanding that in a negotiations context
2: well history is very important for understanding this conflict because it's part of the um identity both russian and ukrainian identity and there's no surprise i mean when you have a conflict the sides have uh, very different interpretations of that history we could go back to the medieval history or even uh, earlier maybe, but I don't think it's it's that important. What's important is the history of nationalism and imperialism, uh, the Russian imperialism and uh, Ukrainian nationalism. And that's probably um, end of 19th century through the First World War. And um, the formation of the Ukrainian nation as a political nation uh, has its beginnings uh, there. I think attempts to create an independent nation state during the First World War towards the end of the First World War, where abortive, as you know, uh, uh, it didn't uh, survive for too long, as many others in the uh, in that uh, Eurasian space, because uh, they quickly came under the Soviet control. And uh, it's paradoxical, but under the Soviet Union, the current configuration of Ukraine, if we look at its uh, territory, it had the biggest gains in the Soviet period. We begin with 1939, a very important point the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, when uh, Poland was divided by uh, Nazi Germany and Bolshevik-Soviet uh, Union. It was the gain of Western Ukraine, essentially, at that time. And it was a very traumatic experience, uh, uh, an experience that not many Russians uh, want to uh, really appreciate. But imagine uh, one day you uh, wake up and you are told that you are a citizen of a different country. And that country now looks at you as a petty bourgeois nationalist, as an enemy of uh, the communist ideology. And at best, since uh, your relatives or uh, parents to Siberia, what would have been the um, response to that? And then comes uh, World War II. No surprise that many Ukrainians, after that traumatic experience of communicating with NKVD, really turned against the Soviets. But it is not like they uh, were fighting for the Third Reich. They were fighting for uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian nation state. When they saw that Nazi Germany had no uh, designs of giving them their independence, they turned against Nazi Germany too. So they were fighting the Soviets, they were fighting Nazi Germans, and it's a very uh, complex uh, history. So I don't want to spend all of our time discussing that history, but it's important to understand how it now impacts the identities. We talk about this war, and uh, often in media, I read that uh, yes, Russia invaded Ukraine, but there is also a subset of formerly Ukrainian citizens from Donbas who've been in conflict with the uh, uh, with Kiev and who have joined now Russians. So it's a kind of has the this element of a, a civil war because much of the fighting in Donbas right now is done by uh, those Luhansk and. Uh, Donetsk. And these are mostly Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And uh, this divide of uh, religion, uniats in the West, Catholic and Orthodox, Orthodox in the East, although I don't think for the East, it's uh, so much the religion that matters, but the language definitely does. And it was played, uh, you know, uh, the language as as a factor in this conflict, uh, played a huge, uh, huge role. So where we are now with history, I mean, as I said, if you if you talk to Ukrainians, you will get a history that you won't recognize if you had spoken to a Russian before that, because the Russian narrative is very di- different from uh, the Ukrainian um, nationalist narrative. So there is a clash of these um, narratives, and they play much bigger role for both Ukrainians and Russians than it may uh, look from the outside. Because for mm. Russians, uh, the history of the uh, Second World War, and especially in the last uh, decade or couple of decades when uh, uh, Putin turned that into the uh, one of the cornerstones of the new Russian identity, the memory of the war, uh, 40 million people dead. I mean, uh, that's uh, still traumatic. That still has its, uh, its presence. And that memory, uh, again, as I said, also is politically uh, manipulated. And unfortunately, the... Um, yeah leaders of Ukraine from uh, outset, from '91 to, uh, uh, to the date, were not able to find some uh, modus vivendi, where uh, the Western uh, Ukrainian nationalists and uh, the Russian-speaking pro-Russia groups could uh, find some kind of balance. It was either dominance of one group over the other, with uh, grievances really uh, driving the process, political process to uh, zero-sum games or it was really seen as a a field for uh, Russia to intervene and to pick and choose uh, someone who would drive Ukraine closer to their interests. So yes, history, I mean, uh, we need to pay close attention to both narratives and maybe um, find some places where it's possible to reconcile, if if at all possible. I remember on one of my trips to Ukraine, I happened to be in Lviv, that's Western Ukraine, on um, May 9th. And there was nothing really big happening on that day, except that people were not really happy about it, celebrated as a holiday in Russia. And on the same day, later on the same day, I was in Donetsk on business. And um, for them, it was the biggest holiday. So they have not only clash of um, narratives formatting their identities. They have clash, anthropological clash almost, of, uh, of worldview, of, of vision for Ukraine and its relationship with both Russia and uh, Europe.
1: You know, Arthur, and you started to lay out there part of the complexity of this from a negotiation perspective. So so often we think of the different parties involved, and we can think of countries, the parties within a country, which I, I feel like you're describing it was within Ukraine, certainly Ukraine, Russia regionally. Then as we think about Belarus and the you know Crimea and other European countries we see germany taking taking some actions that are that are unique and new and then if we think more globally in the role of china and nato and the us is it helpful at all to think of all of those as separate yet connected negotiations how how are you putting putting all those different players together how do you think about it you you're right i mean this conflict
2: has uh, multiple layers i mean and if it, it's almost like this matryoshka doll The bigger doll is uh, certainly the uh, conflict over Russia's attempt to redesign the uh, European uh, security architecture and obviously their conflict with NATO over expansion. Then under it is uh, Ukraine. Russians, I think, uh, in the 90s were not powerful enough to throw the challenge that they have thrown to uh, NATO and to the U.S. right now, and therefore it was kind of a, a grievance that they had to live with. So, with Putin and uh, him getting um, much stronger in military terms, uh, anyway, not as a superpower. Because you, if you look at uh, Russia and uh, many other variables of power, it's still economy and uh, population and whatnot. It uh, it is no match to NATO, but given that it's a nuclear power and given the uh, some of the uh, technological achievements that they had in uh, designing new uh, weapon systems, I think uh, he decided that it's time to throw that uh, challenge. And within that challenge was uh, their perspective on um, how they want to see uh, a future of the Russian empire. We should call things as they are. It is an empire. And um, I think their approach was something that, international relations theorists explained by an abbreviation, N-U-P-I-M-B, which means no unfriendly power in my backyard. So essentially (laughs) they were viewing Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and all these conflicts to a large degree were dependent on their perspective that these countries and others may be joining NATO and uh, seeing as a threat to uh, their security. And no matter how much uh, NATO countries and the U.S. were giving them assurances that advancement was not a threat to them, they were not persuaded that it was not. So for Ukraine, it's not just another foreign country for, for Russians, obviously. And I think uh, they drew some kind of a red line on what they're going to be uh, doing if uh, Ukraine were to try to cede to uh, NATO or become a NATO member. And uh, not so much European Union, maybe, although that was also painful for them. And part of this pain, Russian pain, comes from uh, a bigger issue, which is after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they haven't been able to come up with any attractive model for that backyard that they want to have influence in. If it's mm-hmm. all about uh, market economy and democracy and liberal values, why any of these countries should look at, um, at Russia, the West? offers better transition uh, plans, visions of what these countries should be. So if you don't have a vision or nothing to offer, and the Russian model definitely is not acceptable for countries that uh, do not have the same resources. So the Russian uh, kleptocracy and corruption and the model that they have, a very very vertical uh, model that they have built, and maybe other models would have not worked in an empire is not acceptable to Ukrainians, is not acceptable to Georgians. And that's where you have also this kind of a clash of ideas, a clash of ideas. So now, are there other players? It's, it's very important to understand, or as we say in negotiation, to read the game, right? So we want to understand what this game is, and is it possible to change or not? Many uh, Western observers have been quietly, uh, quite rightly uh Uh, describing Putin's game as brinkmanship. Yes, it is brinkmanship, and if we want to understand what drives uh, brinkmanship, I think we can turn to some of the literature on uh, Sicilian mafia, and uh, Diego Gambetta provided probably the best insights into that kind of mindset. So what's important for that kind of a player is the reputation. Is the reputation. If he makes a threat or if he draws a line, he'd better deliver because others are watching. And it's not a single or a one-off game of chicken run or uh, other brinkmanship or zero-sum games. It's iterative game. So China is watching, and not only China, everybody else is watching whether Putin, mm. after drawing the red lines, is going to act on them or not. He did in 2014. That yeah. kind of thought that that should be enough to secure Uh, weak Ukraine that would be um, not possible to become either EU EU member or NATO member because it has open conflicts. And if you look at the EU criteria or NATO criteria, countries that have, and uh, right now there are, with Ukraine, there are five candidates and Ukraine just uh, yesterday got the uh, candidate status with uh, EU to begin the negotiation for accession. So uh, the stumbling blocks for Serbia, for North Macedonia and others are, are, the, uh, are the conflicts, either secession or uh, problems with the neighbors and so forth. So in the Russian thinking, that should have been mm-hmm. enough to uh, stop the Ukraine's desire to move west. But they were not because uh, even with mm-hmm. the change of administrations after elections, uh, when Zelensky was elected, they had hopes that this should be enough and now they could negotiate with, uh, new, uh, with Zelensky on their terms. But it didn't quite work that way. And as time was going by, they could see that uh, it's almost like this uh, classical paradigm of Athens watching Sparta become stronger. And it has protectors. It has very powerful protectors who strengthen um, uh, this uh, Sparta. And you know that one day uh, they might be uh, challenging you militarily. Militarily, not Russia. But uh, you know the talk of um, repeating um, the Croatian uh, military operation Storm against Ukraine uh, is a very powerful model that was uh, the uh, Ukrainian elites, political elites, have been talking about for a long time. And moreover, they in their military doctrine and uh, foreign policy doctrine, obviously, they were talking about how they're going to bring back not only Donbas or the parts of Donbas that were occupied by uh, Russia or Russian proxies, but also Crimea. And now if you go back to Putin and his mindset, it's not about the economy for him as much. It's about his name and his legacy. How is he going to go down the Russian history as the man who not only brought Russia up from its knees, from the humiliation of the uh, collapse of the uh, Soviet empire, or is he going to be remembered as the one who really accommodated and let NATO and Russia's adversaries, um, uh, this is uh, their narrative, obviously, it's not me speaking now, Uh, advance and uh, get as close to the Russian borders as uh, Kharkiv and other places. So, it's, as I said, it's very complex, but we in the business of negotiation need to understand how the other side thinks. And that doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything that they say uh, or accept substantive merits of their claims. But I need to understand how they're thinking, because if I don't, I would not be able to change that. Now, a big question is, did the West misread Mr. Putin? Uh, There is volumes of literature on who is Mr. Putin from 2001, and some of the best probably books have been written by... My former colleagues, Fiona Hill's text, uh, Angela Stanton, many others, have written about Putin. Did they really misread him? I don't think it's so much about misreading. I mean, I was rereading um, Henry Kissinger's essay that he wrote on March 5th, 2014, when uh, conflict over Crimea was in a very uh, intense uh, stage. And I think he then got uh, so many things right, but policymakers because also of the clash over other issues uh, with Putin, not just Ukraine. Uh, We need to bring uh, back the whole history of U.S. presidential elections, his role, and perspective on Putin as somewhat evil and crazy uh, player. But you know that craziness is also part of zero-sum gaming, and that's his favorite game. If you are playing a zero-sum game, you need to not only say what you're going to do, even if that's unthinkable, you have to make sure that the other side understands that it's credible. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. So obviously we now can talk whether uh, this war was possible to um, avoid or Putin could uh, have been uh, really uh, brought to a table to change his mind on things. It's uh, we, we can certainly analyze some of that. But a bigger question right now for me is Zelensky negot- and he's negotiating, not directly, but through his representatives. Can they negotiate? And can the West negotiate with Putin? And this brings me uh, to uh, probably one of the best conceptual frameworks on that issue provided by uh, Professor Bob Nukin in his seminal text, uh, Bargaining with the Devil. Right? We need to understand, is it yeah. negotiable or not, and how to really think about the issue of negotiation right now I think it's more of a reaction and the sanctions and the severity of sanctions one could uh, one could say that if they didn't work in 2014 they probably will work now and my take on this is that in 2014 I was skeptical about uh, the sanctions tell you why because there were so many loopholes and opportunities to for Russia to Uh, you know, soften the blow from uh, those sanctions, that they were even counterproductive in some ways, in retrospect. Because in the Russian thinking and perspective, if these are your sanctions, if these are the losses that you frame for us, then instead of trying to avoid those losses, we'll act on avoiding the risks of losing Ukraine risks to our security, and so forth. And so they thought that this time, maybe they were surprised by unanimity of the West. And they use now the term, the collective West. So how unanimous they were in their approach. And even Germany, that is now in pain. Price of natural gas is over $2,000 per 1,000 cubic meters right now. So it's very painful, but they stood all together. That's one surprise probably for Putin. Well, with some maybe still uh, softer on sections than uh, others. But uh, most surprising was the scale of this uh, protest in the Western countries. And, you know, it's on um, on the level, uh, it's it's about their athletes, about their cultural um, exchanges. So it's it's almost Russia in isolation. And that probably was, and, yeah. and, and airspace closed, right? I mean, uh, and I think the U.S. is closing its airspace to Russian uh, uh, civilian um, aircraft. So um it's um it's isolation. Uh, but I think they were preparing for these sanctions. It's not like, I mean, he made the decision and was not thinking what what right. uh, the next move next play was going to be. Maybe he was surprised. but as I said, I mean, we need to still be asking those questions that Bob Nuen has, the five questions, and one of them is essentially on the alternatives. if we do not negotiate, what, And what's going to happen to our interests? And do we have interests uh, that is going to be to uh, come to a cost to us? Uh, And um, on economic issues, it's paradoxical that even right now, as we speak, the warfare, very intensive warfare, warfare that uh, Europe hasn't seen since World War II, natural gas flows from Russia through Ukraine to Poland and to Germany. And in fact, it's at its peak of exporting. So I'm leaving um, economic stuff out, I'm not an economist to discuss about it, but I can certainly see areas where uh, without um, systemic cooperation, we may be not able to achieve our goals. And that probably would be other negotiations, Iran, that could be probably negotiations on uh, climate change, because you cannot isolate a country the size of Russia and really speak about effective measures to prevent the uh, climate uh, change. And there are many others, probably. I, I'm not. Um, I haven't done a systematic analysis of uh, what's at stake here. But I uh, yeah. encourage uh, most um, people, especially in our field of negotiation, to think about it from uh, that perspective, rather than, uh, you know. And I understand the emotional outbursts, but we have to be also uh, cold headed. It's difficult for me. Um, uh, I can tell you because. Uh, Every day I get the the news, and I take my news not just from media. I try not to get into media. I take it from my colleagues and friends in Ukraine. So I don't need to be told how stressful, emotionally difficult it is when uh, missiles are flying, when uh, uh, civilians are dying, and when you not only don't know how to escape locked in an urban area, but you don't even know what to put on the table for your, uh, for your kids. So emotionally, it's difficult. But I, again, I, I encourage everybody to take a step to the balcony. And uh, that's what we do professionally. And say, so what's at stake for us? And uh, what it means even for Ukraine if they don't negotiate right now. What, what it's going to be like.
1: Well, let's go. You've offered so much there in terms of why Putin's making this choice, because it certainly feels like an alternatives move by Putin to to go to war. The sanctions are also kind of an alternative choice in why that might be. And then I appreciate the complexity, both of the issues involved and then all the different all the different countries and parties. And I think it's helpful for folks to understand just how broad and challenging this is. A couple days ago, um, Arthur, there was the the five-hour negotiation between representatives of Mm -hmm. Russia and uh, Ukraine. If you could imagine being in that room, what were they discussing? And is there really room here for some sort of creative solution that's better than some compromise that takes us back to Minsk or or 2014? Look, we don't know much about what was negotiated.
2: Some Reconstructive work is possible. I'll start with a very simple uh, uh, proposition. It would not make a sense for uh, the Ukrainian delegation to cover the distance, and they went via Poland to uh, Belarus. So instead of traveling 300 kilometers, they traveled 1,300 kilometers to get to that room for five hours, as you said. If they came there just to trade their positions, they are known, they are public. Uh, The Russians could have provided their narrative in five minutes, and Ukrainians in less than 15 seconds, just as the uh, most uh, popular meme these days is about the Russian ship. Russian ship, go do that yourself, right? So, uh, I mean, but if they're getting to the table, we understand that they have things to discuss, and obviously one of the themes was how to end hostilities, how to end this war my sense from uh, following reactions of Zelensky after the team came back and uh, instructed him. And at that table, by the way, uh, not only uh, uh, these two teams representing presidents were uh, negotiating, they were taking breaks to call the presidents and to consult with them on what was going on at the table. So we can understand that you make a call when an option is on the table, right? Otherwise, I mean, you 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 can respond to almost anything, but you cannot react to an option without checking with your with your boss. In this case, President Zelensky and Putin. Moreover, Zelensky and Putin were taking that time also to talk to European leaders. We know that Putin talked to Zelensky at, uh, uh, to Macron at that time, and uh, um, Zelensky talked, I think, to several, including. Uh, Uh, President Biden, uh, Macron, and uh, uh, Chancellor Scholz. So, uh, again, a very complex setup of the table, right? And uh, uh, so what were they negotiating? Uh, The theme is obvious. How did they come to that negotiation? I mean, what's the perspective? I wouldn't say Russia has a botna here. They have a watna. It's a worse alternative to negotiate agreement because war is not serving one of the most important, I mean, at least at the propaganda level, discussed issues, right? So we're not going into Ukraine to occupy or to kill civilians. We have another agenda. But as the war continues, as I said, more uh, civilians are killed and more hatred there is, even for the people who probably were more loyal to good relationships with uh, Russia. And it's natural. I mean, that's the reaction. So it, it's a what no? But as they negotiate with Ukrainians, they want to show to them that if Ukraine does not accept, and we know what they want Ukraine to accept, then Ukrainian Vatna is going to get to what my Israeli colleagues call Shatna, a uh, shitty alternative to negotiating. Sorry for my... Arthur, that's, that's a new one. I hadn't oh, heard that one before. So in that one. <laughs> right. So, the, um, uh, so uh, that's what's essentially no. going on at the table. Look, it's going to worsen for you yeah. because our military is going to take more territory. Except what we have right now, the option, the package that we have on the table. Or it will be worsening by the day. You will be missing an opportunity. And uh, so the goal of the, Ru- and the Russia is doing it by its uh, military campaign. On the ground, every day we hear that they are blocking another town. They're moving. They, uh, there is uh, some analysts even are suggesting that there may be a repeat of what uh, Ukrainians experienced in 2015, when um, uh, some of their brigades were taken in uh, cauldrons in uh, uh, pincer moves uh, and uh, you know was encircled and then decimated. And Minsk, by the way, agreements were signed under those circumstances. And that's why Zelensky, when he came to power, he was saying, we cannot accept the Minsk agreement because they were signed with the gun at our head. But they are right now again negotiating. The gun is not at the head, the gun is shooting. It's not aimed at the head yet, but it's shooting. Now, why Russians would negotiate then with uh, Zelensky? And by the way, Putin is avoiding to be talking to uh, Zelensky directly. Uh, why? Why would he negotiate? And uh, well, as I said, I mean, he also wants to end this quickly, because if it doesn't, it's I don't know. There are some very uh, nasty scenarios of urban warfare and casualties. I mean, if you start bombing, like uh, it was happening in Syria, Iraq, and other places and you cannot take uh, cities otherwise as we talk they haven't started the storm of mariupol yet but it's encircled and most likely half a million population city not evacuated is gonna see urban warfare from their basements and i i dread to think what the number of casualties might be and we see the same happening in kharkiv by the way this is the negotiation and back to my question why he's negotiating one is that and the other is, he needs Zelensky. That might sound paradoxical, but he needs Zelensky. Why? Because if Zelensky signs, uh, essentially, I mean, uh, they try not to frame it as capitulation. So they avoiding that uh, term, but we all understand what it is. If he signs it, he is the legitimate president of Ukraine. Uh, of Ukraine. He is accepted by the West, and so the West Will accept what Zelensky does. So, this is the thinking behind um, these negotiations. And uh, they didn't end um, in prepat just the other day. They were supposed to negotiate this morning, but the second round has been postponed now to tomorrow, I think. Are they going to be able to um, negotiate these terms that I narrated uh, or not? very much depends on um, what happens on the ground. Because um, the Ukrainian military made almost a desperate uh, counterattack move last night to get to Horlovka. That's right now in the depth of Donetsk controlled uh, area by the military. So they were trying to demonstrate that we are there, we're gonna fight, and it's not gonna be easy for you Moscow to do. So they have, both sides are facing these dilemmas. Uh, How they're going to act at the table, as I said, much depends on what's going to be able uh, to happen beyond the table. And unfortunately, I think the West doesn't have any say in this because they can continue with the sanctions, but they're not going to stop Putin. They're not going to stop Putin because, as I was uh, talking about Gambetta's study, His reputation is now at stake. And there is no easy face saving. There is no golden bridge that can be built for him to walk back from this. And this is the uh, tragic and unfortunate moment in uh, European and maybe world history. And uh, he's trying to uh, show also to the West uh, you think I'm crazy, but I showed you that I did what I told I'd do. And if you try to intervene militarily, I'm going to respond, and that's why they were kind of uh, putting um, on DEFCON 2 their triad, the the, uh, nuclear triad, right? Testing and uh, showing what they're capable of doing. And kind of resolve, don't test us. If you do, we're going to respond nuclear. Any player tries to intervene. Supplies of weapons, arms, I don't think it's going to be that problematic although the West is also very careful. In mean, NATO countries, uh, Poland, Hungary, um, Romania, Bulgaria, they've said uh, they're not going to be uh, doing that. At, um, others have agreed to. But, you know, how can you deliver those things uh, to Ukraine? It's either Poland or the countries neighboring to them, right? Uh, there is no the military infrastructure, airports, airfields, almost all of them uh, have been uh, either destroyed or under attack. So when it comes to demilitarization of uh, Ukraine, I can see how maybe with huge losses to both sides, uh, Putin can achieve that goal. His second goal, though, is very problematic. I cannot really understand how they want to achieve that. But that is also on the table for Zelensky. And they are talking about denazification. This is, again, quote, unquote, the term denazification of Ukraine on par with uh, Nazi Germany post-World uh, War II. How, how how do they see that happen? The Soviets and NKVD after uh, World War II were not able to suppress um, the Ukrainian nationalist underground movement, uh, which was uh, a guerrilla movement, uh, warfare. Not at times very intensive, but it was a pain, a royal pain in uh, for the Soviets, and you know, uh, the uh, the last one to come out from underground and surrender is in 1962. 1962. So don't test the resolve of Ukrainians to resist. This is this is gonna be right. this is gonna be a headache. And you know, some uh, some Western observers have been uh, throwing in uh, this theme of um, you know Ukrainians fighting as part of the Soviet Red Army in World War II and uh, how many uh, uh, heroes of the Soviet Union they uh, provided and whatnot. So they are capable fighters. They have history. And uh, maybe even unlike uh, Russia, their uh, kind of military traditions go to their Cossack uh, history. And uh, I think, I mean, you could say, what does it have to do? Because that's where they, uh, you know, that's their source of inspiration. Kind of in their Weltanschauung, their worldview, that the uh, Ukrainian is a valiant soldier who does not does not yield, fights to the very end. It's uh, and that's why I'm saying this uh, war is not gonna give the uh, results that Putin wants to achieve. Uh, maybe maybe he can he can uh, even dismember the country, but part of it will still remain Ukraine, and part of it will still be uh, as he says. Uh, Posing that same threat. So he's not, I mean, the best way would have been to uh, negotiate all the issues. And to be frank with you, I'd say that most of the issues could have been negotiated. The first opportunity was lost in 2014 when Russia overreacted. And the second one was um, obviously from December to uh, February 24th. There were lots of missed opportunities to negotiate. But by and large, they come uh, out of distrust, uh, not only distrust to uh, Zelensky or uh, Poroshenko before him that uh, Putin and uh, Russians have, but also distrust to, uh, to NATO. We cannot trust your word because you promised uh, NATO would not advance an inch in 1990, your uh, unification of Germany, and yet NATO is here. Uh, again, this is na- their narrative. I'm saying if we wanted to uh, right. really persuade them, that their concerns baseless. There could have been things done uh, to uh, address those uh, concerns. And some of them are probably legitimate. You would not be able to persuade them otherwise, that we're moving our uh, military hardware to uh, East European countries and that's not a threat to you. And there is a question, what, what's the threat that you're trying to um, address uh, by moving it there? Who's threatening you? And in their discourse, again, security discourse that I've been following, they have this huge issue of the U.S. viewing Russia as an adversary, especially after 2014. So trust is a huge issue. And I think at war, it's very difficult to gain even the tactical trust. And that's why they have been trying to bring people, at least one name uh, was circulated that he was not at the table but he was there, that both sides thought that he could be trusted. Uh, That's uh, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. Uh, He moved from UK to Israel, and he has huge contacts and relationships, business, and not only uh, both in Ukraine and uh, uh, Russia. And that's an attempt to kind of to bring someone who would allow the parties at least to look at the uh, tactical trust, because trust is not there. Very difficult to negotiate in a crisis uh, when you do not have trust. And crisis negotiators know that they need to establish it, uh, the tactical trust. I mean, not uh, deep maybe uh, trust, long-term trust, but a tactical trust, right? What is it that uh, you can do right now to show that you're going to stay by what you're going to commit at the table? So this this is the uh, biggest challenge. And I don't know how the next round is going to end. Um, that's tomorrow we
1: were we were counting on you to tell us how it was going to end looking into your crystal ball and and let us know I, how this as plays I said, out from
2: the outset and what I gave you is uh, my reconstruction I'm not, i I do not yeah. insist that this is the only right way of looking at what's what's happening there yeah. uh, I'm saying that I'm skeptical I'd say again to quote my uh, teacher Roger Fisher it's 60 uh, 40 for the success uh, tomorrow. And I don't know which way is uh, 40. I'd say um, I'm skeptical that they're going to be able to, to get things going. Although, you know, there is some uh, promising element in there too, because uh, European Union has set Ukraine now on a fast process of negotiating the acceptance to, uh, I don't know how fast that can be. But I can also imagine that that issue was also discussed at the table. So imagine, well, for instance, Russians are saying, okay, accept what we are telling you and we don't have any problems with you going to uh, European Union or uh, deciding your future however you would want. So is it persuasive? Can Zelensky trust that that's going to be happening? They're not going to go and grab more? And I'll throw even one, right. uh, one issue that uh, acted as a spoiler in this whole game, and maybe accelerated because in the beginning of, the, of this uh, brinkmanship game, Putin's thinking was that, look, I'm uh, putting my military in Belarus and the uh, border with uh, Ukraine, and that should be enough of a threat for the West and for the U.S. primarily and Ukrainians to take it seriously. And then he saw that not only his ultimatum proposition or demands on uh, the security issues with NATO and, uh, and Ukraine were not accepted, that they were essentially rejected except uh, some uh, minor things, you know. And um, we need to understand that this is also the art of priorities, right? Politics as art of possible and the policy as art of priorities. So uh, for him at that point, was obvious that now he is trapped because not only internally he has drawn red lines, that he should go in. And he went, by the way, we probably it was so fast that we probably lost track of chronologically. His next move was, I'm recognizing independence of uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Not intervening yet militarily. I'm still standing there. I'm recognizing them, And that was an even stronger signal that he might not might even, but almost inevitable now. And what was uh, Zelensky doing on those days? He went to a conference in Munich where he essentially said that it's a bluff, it's not serious. I mean, you remember that. Biden was telling him it's imminent. Our intelligence Mm -hmm. says it's imminent. Uh, And he was saying, no, uh, they're not going to do it. Uh, It's probably a bluff. Moreover, at that very conference, he started to talk about revisiting um, the Budapest memorandum on uh, denuclearization and security guarantees that were offered by nuclear powers to, uh, to Ukraine at the time, signaling that they might look into becoming a nuclear power. Back to into Putin's head, this is a huge threat mm-hmm. right now. Even probably bigger threat than NATO membership because Sparta now is not going to be able to go and do what Croatians did in Ukraina uh, in three days, but they're going to have a huge deterring factor. So this is the time. That's why he was saying, I didn't have a choice. I don't believe there are such situations. No choice. But he framed it to yeah. his own uh, population right. that we didn't have a choice. This is the only choice. And that is the only choice We know there are nuclear power plants in uh, uh, in Ukraine. The first one they got in control was in Chernobyl. And it's not reported that much in uh, Western media, but it's now the Russian military and Ukrainian staff are jointly overlooking Chernobyl, the one that had the disaster the Soviet time. But there are other nuclear power plants. And fighting right now goes around Energodar, which is in Zaporozhye and close to another nuclear power plant. There's also a nuclear power, uh, power plant in Rivna. And does it mean that they're going to get in control of all nuclear power plants? I'd say right now, at least, that's their plan. That's their plan.
1: So, Arthur, let me ask you, There's so there's just so much, again, you've covered so much, I'm very grateful for your time. Is there, you know, What should we in the West, uh, those of us that are, you know, concerned for Ukraine, what should we be pushing our leaders to do? As we heard, you know, President Biden say the union last night, we've talked about um, just different different actions to help. I don't know the help in this conflict. You know, a no fly zone seems like it would be a direct conflict. It would engage and escalate the conflict. Is, you know, we we hear senior leaders talking about President Putin as crazy, evil, stupid, and and kind of talking about that publicly. Are those things helpful? What, if as these, as we get ready to see Ukraine and Russia go back to the negotiating table, and maybe there's some time here, how would you recommend, what actions would you recommend that would help kind of balance the, the negotiating table? Well, it's a
2: war, and, um, I think there is not much. I don't know what the uh, military strategists in NATO and other countries are thinking about about doing right now. Weapon supplies, they're running out of their javelin and uh, uh, stinger uh, kind of stockpiles, uh, Ukrainians. uh, uh, Resupply them with more of those, kind of show Russians that there are even some uh, volunteers or uh, soldiers of fortune from all over Europe that are forming a legion, of foreign legion of Ukraine. But I don't think those are going to be really significant in terms of the military. I'm not a military expert, but given the uh, superiority in the sky and preponderance and uh, the sheer power that uh, Russia is able to unleash on Ukraine, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be a matter of time until they uh, destroy. If it continues... It's just that the question is how long can the Ukrainian very capable military resist? You know, when you're running out of your oil, diesel for your uh, tanks and uh, armored vehicle carriers, when the sky is not yours, when uh, you you are also running out of ammunition, and when your troops are not coordinated, how long can you survive? Maybe they can in the guerrilla warfare move. But in terms of uh, organized uh, kind of military resistance, I think it's just a matter of time. And yet, I mean, uh, back to your question, because I think it's a, it's a very important question. Uh, sometimes people say, so what can we do now? It's not the right time to do this or that. And I think the time is right uh, for, for doing things uh, and for us uh, negotiators too, because we should probably look beyond the uh, military phase. Of this um, escalation of this conflict, and I look into what else is going to be negotiated once guns stop shelling. No, I'm I'm very uh, sympathetic to Ukrainians. My uh, granddaughter came from uh, school yesterday, and I'm just going to show you her drawing here. I don't know if it's on oh. camera. Yeah, this is uh, also I, I I daily get uh, as I said the news, and uh, it's it's really it's really difficult. I have to meditate daily to stay in my um, sane mindset. But this alone is not enough. Yes, I I know that Ukrainians really appreciate all the help. Apple stopped selling their products to Russia, two thumbs up. Ukrainians are very, uh, but that is not going to stop the war. And, and I cannot stop that war, obviously. But as a negotiator, I can think, A, uh, to the question that I already posed, questions that I posed. There are five, actually, from uh, uh, Bob Nukin on that uh, conceptual framework. Do we negotiate with the devil? And I'm inclined to think right now that, yes, we are. And you probably know this uh, history, and that was a debate between uh, Roger Fisher and um, Bob Nukin. I remember that in 2001, when uh, George Bush received an invitation from Afghanistan from Taliban, uh, Mullah Muhammad Omar, to negotiate. Uh, Roger and I think uh, Bob Nukin were invited by the administration to brainstorm. Should we accept? Should we not accept? And at that time, well, Roger is from the school of, you know, you, you, nego- you always need to negotiate. And that's what he was saying there. Yes, we need to negotiate with Taliban. If they want to negotiate, we need to negotiate. And Bob Nukin was of a different opinion. Obviously, um, Bob Nukin's opinion prevailed at that time, right? But we know that um, as time went by, almost 20 years, uh, right. maybe less, we still had to go back and negotiate with uh, Taliban. So here too, uh, again, I mean, it's, it will require very serious analytical effort to analyze, not emotionally react what Russia is doing, but to think, is the West going to negotiate with uh, Russia? And if yes, and what is the, is Ukraine going to negotiate with Russia? And if Russia and Ukraine make a deal, some, some kind of a deal, I mean, I don't know about ending the war and ending with Would that signal to the West that they need if, if, if I'm, I'm just thinking about if Ukraine is going to become an EU member and is going to negotiate? There are so many things, not just energy that will depend on how they settle with Russia. Are they going to negotiate? Are we going to all negotiate? And if we are going to negotiate on what? And how to think about those negotiations? Because isolation, I think, works, but it's not the best, uh, the best uh, solution to the problem. By the way, one of the um, fathers of containment, uh, George Keenan, one of the wisest uh, U.S. diplomats, uh, he was ambassador to uh, Russia, he was a very uh, key uh, thinker uh, on uh, containment. He was saying that isolation is counterproductive. We need to keep the Soviets engaged with us because if we are engaged, we still can influence. If we are not, we are not influencing them. Uh, so with that, I mean, uh, I'm not saying we need to do that right away. I don't think uh, the uh, Russian actions should not be condemned. I don't, I don't say that we should not be uh, putting our our uh, best effort to stand by uh, Ukraine, I'm saying we need to think also as negotiators so that this war still has, believe it or not, a potential to escalate further. And I would not want to go back to the theme of guns in August of 1914, when nobody really wanted to start a war, but it started. Here, one mistake, two mistakes, and we, we, we're we not going to have an opportunity to revisit it and go back because this war might be a disaster for the world. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate it, Arthur. Thank you for sharing. And uh, thanks for all your insight into this. My pleasure. My truly really impactful listening to you explain everything. So, Aaron, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Do you want to close this thing out?
1: Well, I just want to thank thank you, Arthur, for your time and and insights. It's it's certainly given us a lot to think about, and I know for for those listening, um, a lot of things just to kind of to ponder and and consider. Um, you know what's what's next, uh, and and what what sort of conversations we can be having. Certainly, want the uh, the, the Ukrainian people to know. Um, you know, our our thoughts and prayers are with them, and and we're going to continue to support them from a distance and for uh Ukrainians living in the United States to know that if there's ways we can help support that community and that desire to help um we want to be doing that too. Absolutely.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, well uh Arthur, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. We really appreciate it. There's no no better way to close it out than everything that you already said. So, definitely thank you again for your time and we'll see you in the next episode.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Good luck.
0: Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.